Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Right Way Podcast Program this afternoon with your host, me, Samuel Elliott. Uh, thank you so much for joining me again today. Today I have a very, very unique, very accomplished guest, uh, Emma Batchelor. Emma Batchelor is actually the winner of the 2021 Vogel, uh, Alan Numbers prestigious Vogel Literary Award for a very well-deserved book, Now That I See You. Now that I see you uh, largely framed by Emma's own experience with her in her life with uh, a long-term partner who uh, ultimately transitioned uh, into trans non-binary person. Uh, so Emma covered, me and Emma covered a lot within this discussion. So I just wanted to give a bit of a trigger warning now that some of the discussions are naturally about, well, stem from discussing uh, gender identity, the transition, uh, trans transitioning gender identity, the use of pronouns, changing pronouns, and more traumatic things as well. So there's the trigger warning there. So suicidal ideation, depression, the long-term effects of depression. Uh, so I just want to give you the warning about that now. And I've also put that in the description, the written description there too. Um, but yeah, I'm really, really, was really, really grateful to speak to M. Bachelor today about now that I see you. Just a little bit of a warning as well, not a trigger warning, but just a, a warning that um, this is currently that I recorded this podcast on the road. And by on the road, I mean I'm at my mum's place, minding my mum's aging dog. Uh, he barked a few times during the, the recording of the podcast. So sorry about that. But um, don't blame me, blame Rory the dog. But um, in the interim, look, thank you so much to Emma for talking to me. So I want you to all give a big digital round of applause to Emma Batchelor talking to me about her incredible Vogel 2021 winning novel, debut novel, Now That I See You. Emma Batchelor, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking oh. forward to a chat. So keen to talk to you. First and foremost, obviously, first priority or order of business is to congratulate you on being the Vogel 2021 winner. Congratulations. Well done. Thank you so much. It's still sinking in. Look, well deserved. Well, well deserved. So yeah, I was just really, really excited to talk to you. Now, normally, when I do um, the podcast, I, I normally like to start off with what I term as an oldie but a goodie, which is where did the idea for your work stem from and with your story I didn't uh, I didn't read I, no, I never really read the media release until I've read the novel so I read the I, I read the novel and I was formulating all these questions like where did um, you know where did you get your idea where did the research come from you know like all these sort of components and then I realized obviously within the thank you at the start and the thank you at the end, the real life Jess. So I was like, okay, this is much of this has stemmed from Emma's real life, real life experience. And I wanted you first of all to talk about that because I think you mentioned in something that you always knew one day that you were going to write about this. Is that, is that true? It is true. I had been writing something completely different and I guess more purely fictional before my partner in real life, Jess, uh, left me and went to focus on her, her gender transition. And during that time, I guess, yeah, even the period that the book covers kind of, it was about 18 months or two years almost where we were kind of in a state of crisis, trying to figure out what 
her gender identity meant for each of us and to our relationship. That I, I don't know, I just had this feeling that it would be something that I would want to write about. But I think then I thought about it as a, a more abstract in the future sometime kind of thing. But when she, when she moved out and I found myself with a lot of time alone to fill and not being able to write anything else just with the way my depression was manifesting, this was all I could think about and write about. And so I started then, which was a shock to me <laughs> as well. Mm. What's the, I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's all well and good to, to decide that, but it's obviously um, such an intense and at the time still raw experience for you. So did you, did you find it cathartic or was, was it incredibly difficult? Looking back now, do you feel that it was probably not the right time to do it or was it the perfect time to do it? I think it ended up being the right time. Mm. I think I thought a lot about when I decided that I did want to write about it then how I wanted to tell the story and what the best way to tell the story might be. And I knew I wanted to capture the, the viscerality of it and mm. the in the moment of it. And I knew that when time had passed and that I was better mentally, that I would reflect on it in a very different way and I wouldn't be able to capture that or I didn't trust myself to be able to capture that. Mm-hmm. It surprised me that I could do that writing and that work alongside experiencing a lot of it in real life as well. And I think it was cathartic, but it also helped give me a little bit of distance in that the way that I was looking at telling the story and putting us both forward as characters rather than a kind of straight up memoir that I could create a little bit of distance and kind of observe us from afar and kind of, yeah, lessen, lessen the feeling of it being me and those things happening to me. That makes, that makes perfect sense. Cause I was going to ask you about um, the decision to, to kind of fictionalize it and present it as such rather than making you know, a kind of more of a straight laced sort of memoir. And that makes perfect sense. And I like the way that you, you mentioned that about affording you some sort of distance of objectivity that you, that you'd need to in order to, to really achieve it. Cause you, I mean, it's not just like, you know, everyone, I, f- I believe that writers, all writers kind of uh, their lives, their experiences, their lived experiences kind of inform you know, bits and pieces, but that might be like a <laughs> one character having, you know, one of their foibles or idiosyncrasies, that sort of thing. But when it comes to actually such a, um, no doubt, one of the one of the biggest stages of your life, um, and all the sort of trauma that was that was that was attached to that, it was an incredibly brave undertaking. It's also good to hear that, um, or incredible to hear that uh, you, that was the time to start writing it as well. Um, Emma, talk to me a little bit about the format of that, because we've mentioned briefly about the way in which you wanted the story to be told. And largely, a large portion of it consists of um, emails and letters. What, what was the, the intention of, of that? Does it kind of, what, what, what was that? I think it's twofold. Mm. I have a lot of actual emails between us and journal entries I had made, although I wasn't taking my journaling very seriously at the time, so I didn't have very many. Mm. 
but so I had a wealth of kind of written material that already existed in some format. And then I think it was maybe a year previously before I started writing, I had read two books that I think are most influential to the, the format that I decided mm. to go with. It was Love Nina by Nina Stibby, which is a collection of, of letters that she wrote to her sister during her time living in London, working as a nanny for the editor of the London Book Review. And it was all one-sided and it was only ever her letters. And I really liked how you as the reader had to make assumptions or could imagine what her sister might have said back because sometimes she would make reference to it and I, I like that space for you as a reader to imagine and the other book was this is going to hurt by adam k which was his journal entries from being a junior doctor over the years and i really liked their intimacy and their brevity as well i mm. found a lot of power in that so I think those two things, I think probably unconsciously at the time, <laughs> influenced my decision, combined with having already a kind of wealth of mm. actual and journal entries to, to scaffold the story out from. It is a very unique um, way to present the story. And I do like hearing about um, how that sort of came to be. The, the, the last time I read anything which was sort of like presented in this letter form where it was, a, it was completely one-sided, it's <laughs> very, very different, but it was the Guernsey Literary and Potato Pop Hill Society. Have you, have you read that or have you seen the, the adaption? My mum yeah. has it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good one. But, but I felt that um, throughout reading your novel that it was, yeah, I like the one-sidedness of it because it, it's there, there is part of you does want to see the other side or see the other correspondence, but the other part doesn't because it, it still enables you and your imagination to now that you've been informed of just enough that you've sort of, and you mentioned brevity there before, you've kind of just put enough there that the, the reader can then obviously inform and decide what, if not the exact words and verbiage would, would be used, at least the gist of what would be said. Um, so there was, that kind of leads on to my next question. So it was always going to be one-sided. You, you never, was there any point that you ever considered writing from just perspective or no? No, I didn't. And mm. that was when I started writing, we were separated mm. and I didn't have her permission. So of course I had all her actual responses that I could have made use of, but I didn't feel comfortable not being able to discuss that with her and also I just didn't want to speak for her and yeah put her words into something that I I felt it was more my story from my perspective and I felt comfortable making myself vulnerable in that way but not doing that to her I thought that that might have been the, the, the logic behind that that does make perfect sense um, because one thing I noticed as well and I wanted to bring up with you is this, this, this kind of like main theme is it's very much a journey, obviously the journey of self, but it's not just Jess's journey or transformation. It's your journey and your transformation as well of self. Um, because at the core of the story I found, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about it too, is, is love. It's, it's, it's love. It's, it's not, it's the, and that's so authentic that, that in itself, 
it's so strikingly authentic throughout. And that's what sustains is this, is this love because, and I wanted to ask you if that was the way in which obviously it's your lived experience, but is it something that you wanted to capture and depict as well? Whereas this, because when Jess first announced this, this um, perhaps identifying as, as trans or non-binary, there's an immediate uh, interest in learning and, and learning how to, to, to process and to continue onwards. There's, ne- there's never a, a dark um, hand on a hot stove rejerk reflex of saying, no, no, I, 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 it's, it's immediate, just taken into account. And that I believe is truly love enduring is something where you just move onwards. Tell me more about that. What do you think? I'm so glad that that resonated for you because mm. I think it absolutely was my intention and what I hoped would shine through. And I think those themes of gender identity and sexuality and how important they are or can be to a person or their relationship, I really wanted to show the love and how those mm. things interact with love. And I think even in my lived experience of it, that was something, it probably was the most, I guess, difficult thing that we we had worked through together as a couple. And I think it really helped me understand my love and how that manifested and how I showed it and what it was contingent on or not in a way that I I hadn't ever thought about before. Mm. And I ultimately realized that the gender of my partner wasn't as important to me as I thought that it was. And also that my sexuality and how I thought about it or defined it was perhaps more important to me at the time, but now feels less important now. And I was, yeah, I don't think I would have even done that that thinking if it weren't for trying to to present it in this story as well. I think that was another layer of figuring mm. all that, like living it and then trying to communicate it is part of that thinking and processing as well. Mm. It's definitely like it always felt empirical. Like it always felt that you uh, must have lived through it because it's just the authenticity i mean research can do so much particularly if one you know dedicates a long time to it but the 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 reactions the feelings the kind of like the the musings and stuff like that throughout um was probably one of the most engaging and strongest and most arresting aspects of of the entire piece was just because you did feel it and i i could see it, yeah it being an empirical experience and how that sort of informed the story and immediately, like, that's, that's what love is. Love endures. And I think that you captured that quite well. I wanted to, there's a mention, you said that uh, at one point early on, there's talking about grieving for the life that I thought I was living. And I wanted you to kind of talk a little bit about that, Emma, because there's some absolute amazing lines throughout that kind of surmises this this how you felt or how it was feeling at that time. But I wanted to, cause that, cause that was mentioned a little bit early on. And I thought that really stood out. What, tell me a little bit more about this uh, feeling of uh, grieving for a life you thought you were living. I think at the time 
and I think we probably naturally do this in a lot of our relationships mm. and I I kind of skip ahead and imagine <laughs> what things will be like and what might be next in store and kind of yeah like what the natural progression of things might be and I think I painted an idea of what our relationship was and what it looked like and that was as as a man and a woman mm. so when Jessie was able to tell me that she was questioning her gender identity that was in contrast to this idea that I'd had in my head of what what our our relationship and our lives would look like and so I felt I guess yeah that incongruence and that mm -hmm. was diff difficult to to rationalize and with everything in such flux and not knowing what our relationship could look like and as Jessie would change and as her transition progressed I felt very unmoored and didn't like I just yeah lost any of that ability to think about what a future together might look like it's it is a tough one because obviously given that the relationship at the, at the point that it's depicted as somewhere within the region of about six years or so um living together this shared existence that's going on for for such a a major change um it can be very very difficult to process and i feel that that's the 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 main crux of of what the the character uh struggles throughout a large portion of it is to to kind of countenance or kind of um reconcile with the fact that now uh life has irredeemably changed whereas and it's mentioned several times like if only it could kind of go back to the way it was or i just want them to love me as they did as i still do because that's another thing as well. And I know we've kind of touched on, on love as in love felt, but love is this driving force that can kind of uh, be to a detriment actually of one's mental health, because I wanted you to kind of talk a little bit about that. There was one point and I really, really liked this as well. There was a mention of love. Uh, I still fiercely love them, fiercely love them. You know, you use that term. And I was like, that's the, that's the best way to put that. And I want you to talk a, bit, a little bit about that because love is a beautiful thing, but within the scope of this, and I dare say maybe even within your personal life, it kind of caused you a lot more heartache and a lot more trauma because it ensured a few more years of kind of trying to come to terms and see how you can repair it. Tell me more about that. I think that's definitely right. And I mm. think it's a combination of things in that it wasn't because of Jessie's transition or her being transgender it was coping with that change and what that change meant and i think in that regard the things that we went through could apply to any kind of other relationship where there's great change and i think for me because my love was so strong and i was trying so hard to hold on and to to try and make something work it was detrimental to me and certainly to my mental health mm. and i did have depression and for a long time I didn't even realize I was depressed and then I was able to get help and that made a big difference to me but I just lost sight of myself and all the things that were mine in trying to to hold on <laughs> to this relationship and I think it's a double-edged sword in that regard because I think my love allowed me to be helpful and supportive in a way 
perhaps I couldn't have had mm. I not felt that so strongly, but it also allowed me to lose myself. And that now that Jess and I are back together in real life. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Awesome. Yes. So that's the happy real life good news. Oh, <laughs> that's so good. Oh, that's, that's so good. That's so good. Yeah. Awesome. But that's something that we're now, I guess, because we're both in a much better independently mm. for us to be able to come back together and to be conscious of that and kind of maintaining that that independence as well as the strength of our connection. Oh, that's, that news is music to my ears. That's that's brilliant. Emma. That's <laughs> that's awesome stuff. Look, you touched on a lot of different stuff there that I kind of want to delve into. Let's t- let's talk about depression first and foremost, because again, and I've already said like empirically, like it, it all it checks out. Like it, that's the, the authenticity is there throughout. But um, what I what I really really liked, and I wondered if this was this was what your experience was, or if you decided um, early on into writing that you you needed to frame it as such, or in short, this kind of went. Is I was really really impressed with. Uh, the character's ability to consult mental health professionals or go those routes and seek out professionals rather than kind of like having um, this sort of thoughts or ideations without kind of expressing them. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because was that something that did happen in real life or was that something that you thought was important to include within this story so that people reading it and possibly experiencing the same thing sort of had you know a go-to guide? Both. Hmm. It- essentially what did happen in real life and particularly with the way that I discussed and presented mental health I felt I I strongly felt that I wanted to be accurate to that Mm. for all the reasons that you said and the way that I thought about it I think changed with different drafts because early on I still felt too ashamed of my suicide incident Mm. to include it And it wasn't until later when I processed that more that I felt that I could and that it could be important and helpful to include it. And the same with the mentions of being able to go onto a mental health plan, being able to go to my psychologist and what that looked like, because they were all things that I hadn't really talked to my friends about before. And I knew some of them might be struggling or might be seeking external help, but it just wasn't something that we particularly talked about together. Mm. And I, I felt if I could convey that information in a way that was still, yeah, authentic and made sense to the story, but that could be helpful to someone, I feel like it could have been helpful to me Mm. at the time to just have some of that practical understanding of how all those things might work it would have made it less intimidating i think to seek that help i could definitely see that and um i'm like like i thought that throughout i was like this is actually a really really positive way of showing what's an all depicting but uh what what can one one can and and should do with with these sort of ideations and and thoughts is to you know consult professionals i was just very impressed by that I, i didn't i didn't know if that was like something that had happened in real life or subsequently you had just contriving your mind to make sure that you depicted it as such. Talk to me because you mentioned just then that you, in earlier drafts, you hadn't um, maybe explored that as much. And I wanted to know if with future drafts or with, you know, constant revisions, if you included more and more, because it seems like um, throughout the novel that there's 
nothing is off the table. There's not nothing's taboo. Like everything is you've you've depicted everything entirely, you know, um, to you to your credit, like in the best way possible. To your credit, in the best way possible. Um, tell me a little bit about that though, because you just mentioned about the the depression. So in terms of adding, was was that something that you kind of worked through yourself? Was that all part of your process, and then adding that to the novel? From the beginning, it was important to me to try and to depict everything in that holistic way. Mm. I have to resist the tendency to perhaps paint myself better or my behaviour better than it was. I really, I really wanted to depict things as they were and as they happened. And I think as with each draft, I did feel like I could include more. I think a lot of, I guess, the sex stuff and the mental health stuff that naturally wove its way in, but there were even things that I found I had repressed in my real life that would come up to me through this process of writing. And one of them was when um, quite late on in our relationship before Jess left, I I was wanting to have sex mm. and she just wasn't mm. able to at the time. But sometimes when we were asleep, in her sleep, mm. she would initiate and I would let her just to, to be touched. And I I must have repressed that. And when it came up, I felt that so strongly. And I sat with it for a little while. But I just had a feeling that that was an important thing that I should include. I think it did change with time and kind of how I was thinking about things or remembering things. And then if they felt important to include, because there's also all the things that I didn't include (laughs) that happened. So I think it was very much a when things came to me, a decision of what what served the story as well. You, we've mentioned brevity, and I like I can see that because I mean it's it's a very it's a it's a lean novel, but there's a lot obviously covered and discussed in it. And I did wonder at that. I wondered if it was if it was a case of you for your own your own process of um coming to terms with what's happened on your you know improving ever burgeoning mental health. If that was something that then you know you had to decide is this necessary and is this to the benefit of the story and is it is it of benefit to myself uh, digging through you know it comes kind of some of this which might potentially be like a kind of raw wound still. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, communication because the story is largely founded upon communications, obviously, as in like emails, etc. But it was something that I was impressed with because it was, and again, this kind of harkens back to what we've touched on with the, the first reaction to um, just expressing perhaps being trans or non-binary that there was just an acceptance in trying to then work out how to, to, to work with that. And the communications, now obviously they, they, you know, they still cause tremendous kind of trauma in terms of them. But I felt the communication was between the two, was incredibly strong throughout. And I was wondering if not only if that was something that you wanted to naturally depict because you kind of had to, to tell the story, but if it was something that you also paid close attention to in the way in which you kind of saw this story manifest itself? I think it's a bit of both. (laughs) We, 
I think we were our naturally good communicators with each other. Mm. I think I was actually worse than Jess. But at that time in particular, things were fraught and we weren't able to communicate as well as we, we could before. And I think in real life, the move to communicating in writing was really helpful. And that was something that we did do. And that's a space I feel more comfortable and powerful in rather than verbally, I would say, certainly mm. at the time. And so I felt that put me in a position to be, to be more considered. And although I probably was very emotional in my writing, mm. to, I guess, yeah, to, to, to give more space and time and for me to be more considered in what I was saying than I felt I was doing so verbally. And I liked that idea of presenting that in the book and for readers to even be able to make their own decision as to, to how those emails are used because I think sometimes I definitely weaponized them. Mm. At times, I think I was just so unwell and saying, look, it's cool. I shouldn't, <laughs> I shouldn't. Mm. So I find that very interesting. And I liked the idea of including dialogue, but as it was reported by me and that the reader could also question how accurately the character of me is relaying that information. Absolutely. And I mean, it's true. It's a weird one, isn't it? Because I mean, communication is naturally key, but then like you kind of also mentioned that it can be to the detriment of both parties as well for communicating too much or too openly, or in theory, the more you communicate, maybe then that can lend itself to being misinterpreted or kind of, you know, that sort of thing. But I kind of a little bit adjacent to the communication and what I wanted to talk about a little bit, the, the, the novel itself is, is you know, obviously quite heavily focused on the two. But there's a few interesting um, characters and they were also used as, I feel like a platform for you to kind of delve into some other bigger themes or, or kind of um, societal practices, I think that you might want to see more of. One of them was when Belle, Belle or Elle? Belle. Um, Belle, yeah, Belle, um, uh, was going away and uh, her and the main character went out and it was used as a, as a form of, uh, it, it happened kind of um, organically but it was allowed for education saying, Oh, I've got some, you know, some material I can send you. I've got some, some stuff like that. And I think like within that sort of macro, like level narrowed to a person's personal experience, I feel like that could lead to societal betterment. Yeah. Cause if someone's like having a cordial discussion saying, I don't know much, but I want to learn, please help me learn. They say, well, welcome. Like, let me, let me help you. And, you know, check this out. Let's talk a little bit about that because I feel like that was kind of like a personal level allows for education, which can lead to real big picture stuff. Emma, is that what you're kind of touching on? Yeah, I think so. I mean, all of those characters, nearly all, are my my real friends and family with their names changed. And I did, I guess, cherry pick some of those interactions to make points like that. Mm. And in with L2, in terms of her sharing clothes with Jess, something we thought a lot about was the for somebody who might be transitioning or needing wanting to express their gender in a different way there's definitely a monetary aspect to that in that you need to accumulate all new clothes and all new things that match how you want to present 
And, you know, you might be able to afford that or you might not, or you might have lovely friends who can give you something or you might not. So certainly through some of those interactions, I wanted to be able to show kind of the breadth of responses that we were experiencing from some people wanting to, to educate themselves and to understand and to be involved to other characters that perhaps did find it more jarring and unexpected and weren't able to kind of open themselves up to it or give the support that they needed. So I did think a lot about kind of who who to include and what aspects and what that could say. Mm. So still still on that kind of related to it, but um, this is more the like a, a person's reaction um, or misconceptions, which I felt was kind of emblematic of, of a larger bigger picture that you know you could constantly brush up against. It was um, main character talking with uh, Harrison. Harrison's misconceptions. Uh, there was two, no longer wanting to be with Jess because uh, she's interested in men or if one transitions into a woman, they must now like men. So there's mm. these two sort of misconceptions that I kind of, I felt, again, that you've utilised this person, you've talked about having a character and like that's cherry-picking this sort of springboard, as it were, to kind of like obviously express these, these sort of um, very real, still kind of pervasive societal attitudes. So talk, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was a, a pretty standard response that mm. because Jess was transitioning, that I, I might not want to be with her anymore because up until that point, I'd only been in relationship oh. with men. And that if Jess was transitioning, that her sexuality might change and that she might not necessarily be attracted to me anymore. And for some trans people, that is the case. And for others, it's not. And it's not a given. But it really highlighted to me this, that very rigid binary structure that, you know, we do really depend on and make assumptions about that men like women mm. always. <laughs> And that it's not, it's not that straightforward and it's not that rigid. And I think that's something that Jess has discovered within herself. And certainly it's something that I've realised about myself in terms of my sexuality and who I'm attracted to and how that has changed. Mm. Yeah, no, it was really... Um well put in that and i can totally see that that would be a common misconception particularly the the, the second one that was mentioned about transitioning therefore you must now again this binary you must now like the opposite sex or whoever identifies as the opposite sex kind of thing um i feel that there was a mention as well that you said there was, again and I, I said it early on that there's just some lines in it that are just like just stand out in terms of encapsulating some very, very complex, innately um, difficult thoughts to kind of express. One was in one of the emails that said, the fact that I need you is not a flaw. And kind of also kind of similarly adjacent to that late, a little bit later is my wants and needs are justified. And I want you to talk to me a little bit about that, Emma, because I feel like, and again, this kind of also sort of uh, dovetails nicely from what we've talked about misconceptions is that, uh, loving someone is conflated then with with a dependency or a neediness beyond what should be um, one should want within their life. And I, I, I'm totally on board with what you were saying in terms of that. I'm like, 
of course it's it's right to want and need someone so why why then would that ever be a misconception but um please tell me a little bit more about your your thought process there yeah that those lines are are very true to my actual experience and our Mm. actual experience and i think i i naturally felt comfortable with needing somebody and being reliant on them and loving them and those things intermingling. But I think for Jess, that was a difficult, a more difficult link to make. Mm. I felt at the time that that need and reliance, and I think we were totally codependent at the time, but that that need and reliance was only a bad thing. Mm. And I don't think we had a healthy balance that's for sure but those things are still valid and important and it's not wrong to to not be so self-reliant and to need others for things and I think too just with everything happening and the way my depression was manifesting I put a lot of that on myself and I all I tended to feel secondary and like my needs and desires and wants were secondary to Jess and what she was going through. Mm. And that wasn't fair on me mm. either. But I think we kind of both allowed that that situation to occur. Spot on with the, um, the that there's different types of positive uh, need, you know, so codependence and then there's negative types. I totally, I'm so on board with you with that. Towards the end, is what it kind of also carries a little bit on, but again, it was kind of like one of those moments where I was like, oh, mind blown. And uh, you mentioned, character mentions listening to a podcast and I think like they kind of like, kind of like want to downplay as, as in the profoundness of this message that it's not them that's kind of like does, uh, conceived it. But it's mentioning about uh, being so aware of someone else's frailties is forcing me to confront my own. And that is like, whoa, like that kind of like almost surmises the entire book and the entire standpoint or viewpoint within within it, within this realm. And I want you to talk to me a little bit about that. Did you come up with that? Because if you did, I know. No, for you. I know. I wish I could say I did. No, I really was listening to a podcast. Oh, really? Um, okay, cool. Cool night who said it now but it was an episode of how to fail with elizabeth day and it was one of her guests that's terrible i can't remember who they are but that was essentially what they said in in those words and they were talking about a friend they had who had a substance addiction problem and that it blew my mind when i heard it and uh, how i thought about it and how it related to me and our experience and what we were going through because oh absolutely I would never have looked at myself this deeply or confronted all the the negative things that it was bringing up for me if we hadn't been through this experience and I I absolutely now with the benefit of space and I guess the happiness of of being back together and in a more constructive relationship I feel that I am such a better and different person for having gone through it and having mm. almost been forced <laughs> to look at myself in that way and do that work. 
yeah, I mean, like it's such a, a journey that kind of doesn't really ever fully reach an end, I guess, like without being morbid until, you know, until the, the end of your days, really, because mental health is not something where you just reach to a certain plateau and say, everything's sunshine, lollipops. I'm in a perpetual state of euphoria. Everything is always, always radiant and sunny here. I really like the way, and you mentioned it was, it was a friend that mentioned it, but again, I wanted to bring it up because it was just such a good analogy, but it was the, the analogy of the hospital and your mental mm-hmm. health being in an intensive ward and then being moved from that. So I'm paraphrasing a bit, but I kind of wanted you to talk a little bit about that because it kind of is towards, I think it might be the last page or second last page of the novel. And it kind of like is obviously the standpoint there where it's like, here's where I somewhat am. Tell me a little bit, or tell the listeners a little bit about that, Emma. Yeah, absolutely. That was something that Suzanne did say to me, but it was actually much later on. And Mm. it really, probably some months after when the book, actually ends in that timeline Mm. and I think she said it to me in a slightly different way than I've you know manipulated it to suit my purposes but it was so beautiful I thought and did really kind of encapsulate the the I guess sense of hope and independence that Mm. I wanted to, to give the ending and so I was I was mostly strict with myself as to include things in the timeline as it really did progress because I, particularly for the arcs of mental health, Mm -hmm. I didn't want to to rush that. I wanted to be true to kind of how long that can take to manifest and how long it can take to get better. But that was something that I felt I could cheat the timeline with a little bit to include because it, it was just, I think, the perfect ending for me in what I was trying to say. Yeah, spot on. I'm, I, I agree with you as well. Um, absolutely, because it was it was a there was obviously a note of hope, but it wasn't um, it wasn't overdone. It was it was to kind of you know, say that mental health is is, is something that um, yeah it, it isn't fixed overnight, and it probably will never be, ever be fixed. It's not something you can just you know smooth over with a little bit of um, caulk from the Bunnings warehouse, but. No, no, I thought that that was, was very well put and it did kind of beautifully surmise that. I wanted to kind of end with something a little bit interesting. I wanted to see what advice you would give to yourself, Emma, before you started putting pen to paper because you've mentioned the process in which you took, but what advice would you give to yourself and follow? Mm. Oh, it's very hard. I think... I was very, very hard on myself Mm. in real the whole time. And I think the writing process actually helped me empathise with myself and be kinder to myself. I think I'm really glad that I started writing when I did and a lot of my friends and family had told me not to, (laughs) to wait and give space. So I think I'm just so happy that I trusted my gut instinct and I would tell myself to do that and I think I was a bit obsessive and with my writing and wrote all the time when I wasn't working or I wasn't asleep and maybe I would tell myself to look after myself a bit better Mm. and to have a better balance but I think I'm proud of myself and I'm really glad that I listened to myself in a way I hadn't been before and that I I wrote what I I 
needed to write. That's so good. You should be proud of yourself because it is a it is an incredible achievement. I'm so glad that it was recognised um, within this capacity with with Vogel um, being the winner of the the Vogel for 2021. That's such a, that's such a good story, and it's so good to hear um, Emma that you and Jess yeah. are together again. That's seriously so lovely. It was um it was a profoundly affecting uh, story. I must say um, I haven't I haven't read anything like it ever really. So. Yeah, it was an absolute. Um, I can't. Well, I can't say it was a joy to read because it was. It was. It was. It was hard going in some parts. Naturally, the subject kind of subject matter lends itself to that. But um, it felt rewarding and uh, rewarding in the in the purest and least contrived sense of it. I was. I was. Yes, immensely rewarded for reading it. So look, thank you so much for writing it, for working through that. Thank you so much for um, sending it through to Vogel. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me today on the program. Thank you so much and thank you for this lovely conversation. It's been wonderful. Oh, greatly appreciate it. Thank you. So everyone, that was Emma Batchelor talking to me about her incredible debut novel, uh, Vogel winning 2021, Vogel winning debut novel, Now That I See You. Thank you so much to Emma for appearing on the program and having such a cordial enlightening discussion about her work, her craft, her story, um, both personal as well as fictional. It was an absolute joy talking to her. Uh, I hope that you've enjoyed this discourse as well, robust discourse as well. Uh, again, as I mentioned in the intro, I will place in this description of this particular episode the website for Transhub, the URL, what have you, website for Transhub, which I do urge everyone, uh, no matter uh whether your your friend or loved one or anyone you know is trans or transitioning, I still uh, recommend that you check out the website. Wealth of knowledge, wealth of resources, really enlightening, really edifying. Uh, can't recommend it enough. Can't recommend the book enough as well. Now that I see you, which is now out with Alan and Unwin, I'll also put in the description of this episode as well the link to to uh, Alan Unwin's website specifically the now that I see you and bachelor page there where you can buy the book get your hands on a copy give it a read uh, finally thank you so much as always for listening to me listening to all the episodes really appreciate it really appreciate the followers that are coming through really appreciate um, whoever or however many people are going back and listening to the episodes from yonks ago from like the monica mcinoni kind of the godmothers era when uh the program was not even in its infancy it was a newborn and it, it was uh it was just a thing that had just happened it was just this crazy thing that i'd always wanted to do with the next step within my interviewing of, of cool people so thanks heaps for for listening to going back and listening to them and giving all the follows and all the love and all the good vibes that are sent to me i can feel them like a uh, standing next to an electrical generator or something with the the hairs on the back of my neck. Uh, well, maybe not that analogy because that's a bit of it sounds a bit negative, but positive, positive. I'm feeling incredible positive vibes. So thank you all to everyone for listening and for following. A lot more episodes of the show coming up. Well, a lot more episodes of the show coming up. Uh, so please stay tuned for that. And again, yeah, thank you so much. And I bid you all a wonderful Wednesday afternoon.